As we begin to open our economy, what really happened at the bedside of coronavirus patients admitted to the hospital? Today is Memorial Day, May 25th, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spyro Podcast. Here at the Spyro Podcast, I received emails from other physicians asking some relevant and poignant questions. Instead of answering those myself, I thought it would be better to get the perspective of three different specialties. We've chosen to step outside of our usual format and instead, I brought in three frontline physicians caring for patients suffering from COVID-19. If you like this format, let us know. We'll put together expert panels from time to time to answer your questions. Now, without further ado, let's dive into the discussion with Dr. Susan Evans, Chief of Acute Surgery at Atrium Health, Dr. Zainib Shahid, an infectious disease specialist with lots of national recognition participating in multiple trials specifically related to treating patients with COVID-19, and Dr. John Wynn, a pulmonary critical care specialist responsible for caring for patients suffering from COVID-19 that require ICU levels of care. First question, have you ever operated on any COVID-positive patients? And if so, did the operation go any different than it would have if they were COVID-negative? For example, what has been your tracheostomy policy? And is there anything unique that you're doing there? Are you doing apneic entry into the trachea with the tracheostomy tube or something else different? How about any other mitigating plastic coverings such as intubation boxes or some sort of tent? At our institution, we're trying all different kinds of things. What kind of PPE are you wearing in the operating room now that we seem to be on the downward slope of the curve of the no COVID cases? So, Interesting question. A lot of questions there. Um, you know, I'll bring up my N of 1 with the intubation box. Um, in my personal opinion, we used the intubation box for tracheostomy um, placement at the bedside, and I felt as though it made it less safe. It was too much hands in and out, and we kept popping off circuit. It was uh, definitely uh, aerosolizing. So um, Dr. Evans, as our surgeon on the panel, um, what are your comments on this? Yeah, these are, this is sort of uh, all things surgical. There are lots of questions in here that can be addressed and, and all things that have been um, a lot of attention and, and no one has had a very clear answer, um, at least at the beginning, on what we should do with each of these things. So I'll start with, have I operated on any positive patients? I have not operated yet on any patient that I knew was positive. Our group has operated on a couple, of, done a couple of tracheostomies on folks who had been COVID positive and, um, and then after the 21 days that we have uh, elected to wait have been screened or have been tested as negative, um, but we treated them as if they were positive. And the truth is any patients right now that we're operating on, we are at least um, using uh, PPE as if they may be positive because, because uh, in some cases they're just not testing um, positive yet, but may have had the exposures. So um, with regard to the PPE that we're using, we, um, in the operating room, we're treating anybody who has not already tested negative as if they're positive. So they may be positive or they may be somebody that we don't have the result on, which means they're getting intubated and then we're waiting in our operating rooms, we're waiting 14 minutes after the intubation for people to go back into the room. So the only person in the room is the CRNA um, and sometimes the anesthesia attending as well. And then we wait 14 minutes for air recirculation because that's the time that we that, that air recirculates in our ORs. And then we go in and um, most of our surgeons are using N95s 
um, whether or not, um, even, even on many of our negative patients, just because it's frankly easier to keep the mask on all day rather than putting it on and off and on and off. Um, That's interesting. Um, the CDC just came out today, or yesterday, I should say, saying that approximately 30% of carriers or patients with that are COVID positive are completely asymptomatic. So your doctors are taking the path of just N95s all the time. It, yeah, that's right. Many of them are, and that's probably a good reason to be doing if, if you know, if there are a number of people who are um, showing up as, I mean, asymptomatic at this point, which we know that there's a, there are a large portion of those. At our institution right now, um, the asymptomatic patients, 1% of them or less are testing as positive. Um, and of our, of our patients in our, uh, at our institution, 10% of the patients who come in symptomatic are testing positive. So we still have a pretty low percentage, um, but I think that's because of the um, prevalence in the region has been low to this point. Um, but we kind of don't know when that's going to increase. And again, the changing the, the PPE is a, is partly a matter of habit because of the um, wearing it throughout the throughout the day in the hospital when you're exposed to lots of different um, potential patient populations as well. We, we've actually also used the intubation boxes and. Um, our intubation team is using the boxes pretty regularly for intubating patients when they know they're COVID positive. And I think the way they've been made and the, the structure of them is working well for intubation. We've also used one, um, a couple of, we've used them on a couple of different cases for tracheostomy. And the one that I did on, which I did it, we, we actually were able to um, not break the circuit, but we had to be pretty attentive to not break the circuit. Um, one of my partners found that it, they, it was too easy to break the circuit, and he also was getting a lot of reflection off of the top of the box. He's about a foot taller than I am. Uh, <laughs> and so the reflection off the top of the box was making him not be able to see. And so it's interesting that when you change your behavior in order to try to make something safer, and I think this is what you were bringing up, Dr. Zagoda, you can, in fact, make things less safe if, you, uh, if you're not attentive to it. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that point that you brought up. Actually, when this whole thing started before we actually started admitting patients at our institution, we were taking regular otherwise sick but not COVID patients from our ICU down to the CAT scanner. And when we would do that, we would pretend that they were COVID positive. So that way we would be able to practice what it would be like to go from the ICU down to the CAT scanner and back and minimize any kind of exposure or um, aerosolization or whatnot. So uh, we learned a ton by doing multiple, multiple practice runs. And when we did this tracheostomy case at the bedside, there was no practice run. It was just first time, grab the box, let's go with this patient. It was fortunately had converted COVID-free. Um, they were COVID positive. They'd been there long enough that they were now COVID negative. Um, so if the patient was, in fact, truly positive, uh, we would have um, surely been aerosolized from it. So that's awesome. You know, it's interesting. It brings up another point is um, if we're looking at these medicines that are out, you know, we've been completely inundated with a glut of poor or actually mediocre data from various journals, countries, societies, even well-meaning institutions, and especially the media. So, um, Dr. Shee, would you mind talking a little bit about some of the medicines 
um, that we're having to use now or whether they're working, whether they're not working, what you've seen? Share some of your experience. So you pretty much uh, summarized the the whole ordeal about treatment and treatment modalities associated uh, uh, with COVID-19, starting from the very early reports with hydroxychloroquine to this date, there hasn't been a well-established randomized trial that has effectively proven any particular therapy. I'll start from hydroxychloroquine. It was FDA approved. It is a antimalarial agent. We believe that there may be some antiviral activity by changing the pH of the cell membrane. However, there is to this date no uh, data in the setting of a randomized controlled trial that would support the use uh, of hydroxychloroquine um, and its effectiveness in treating or preventing um, the COVID-19 infection. As you know, that it has also been studied in prophylaxis uh, situations after exposure. So initially, we did start using it as a treatment modality, but as as the data became clear and the adverse events associated, especially the prolonged interval became more clear to us, we have shied away from using this um, as a therapeutic option for COVID-19. That brings to us uh, brings to us to our second agent that has received, uh, which is still under investigation and has received uh, expanded access to the FDA called remdesivir. Now, the, 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 the interesting thing about remdesivir is that it is an antiviral agent, in fact. It uh, stops the genome replication and viral uh, assembly by uh, by inserting itself into the messenger RNA. And thus far, the antiviral data is in vitro. Uh, if I can summarize the three studies which have been looked at remdesivir, the number one study looked at five versus ten day. It was a Gilead-supported study. It didn't really show any difference um, in treatment in five versus ten days. The second uh, study came out of China that also looked at um, remdesivir and its use in severe COVID, but it really didn't show any clinical difference um, between the remdesivir-treated uh, patients. Um, and so it was, it was not a um, study that pointed towards efficacy. Whereas the third study, which was the NIH study that still needs to be published, under which the remdesivir approved uh, got the FDA approval, um, it showed preliminary data and and see we have not the not seen the uh, randomized or published results yet. What we know what's in the media again, that is you know it may be faster recovery, uh, eleven versus fifteen days, and there may be a trend um, regarding improving mortality. But the most important thing is we do not know what the cohort is, whether these are early in the disease patients or late in the disease. So I think we're hopeful with the randomized control trial being published, there would be more, we'd be more confident in saying that it may work, but I am very reluctant to say that this would be, this would be the, uh, you know, miracle or the uh, game changer for COVID-19. Having said that, I know there are important, what's important about science is that there are many, many other randomized control trials there under investigation. I can mention a couple. One would be the um, Selenector trial that is underway also at our institution. It is um, antiviral and anti-inflammatory agent, and 
based on the exp uh, some of the expanded access use seems to be a promising agent. It's a pill that's taken for two uh, two weeks. Uh, however, obviously, we'll have to wait for the trial results. Um, and the other agent that I really wanted to bring attention to, again, it's an antiviral agent, um, is with DS181 that has been uh, studied for respiratory viral illnesses, uh, including influenza and other viruses. And that's also coming to our institution as an inhaled agent for direct delivery to the respiratory uh, tract. So there are there is uh, there is promising um, um, uh, trials. There are promising trials which are up and coming. You know, you bring up a great uh, discussion there about the inhaled medications. I've heard that there's more than one inhaled medication, including some IL inhibitors that are inhaled and whatnot. But early on, everybody I remember clearly saying in all the chats and all the physicians that were communicating on the chats were saying. We are not using any inhaled medications because we want to minimize aerosolization of the virus in the room. I think now that we've had some experience, a few hundred patients under our belt, that we're feeling a lot more comfortable saying, you know, I think that our N95s are working, we're well protected, I think it's okay to start doing these kind of things. Have you or your colleagues heard anything about this being an issue at other institutions? So, uh, yes, I think it was a huge um, sort of concern, and I, rightfully so, because we really didn't want to expose our healthcare workers, which are on the front lines. So there has been a lot of mitigation to decrease the risk, such as special kind of nebulizers that have been developed for these agents uh, so to minimize aerosolization. And also many of the um, trials and institution are going to a point where the respiratory therapist necessarily doesn't need to be in the room so that there is decreased aerosolization with the procedure itself. So this was a definite concern. And after much uh, talks with the sponsors and other institutions. Uh, actually, we were able to address some of those concerns. And uh, like you said, mm -hmm. having experience with this has made us much more comfortable utilizing these modalities. Speaking of experience, um, Dr. Wynn, critical care specialist, um, oversees a very, very large intensive care unit right now. And um, he has probably seen more COVID-19 patients in our healthcare institution uh, since this has all began. So, uh, Dr. Wynn, what has been your experience with, say, the number of COVID patients in the hospital and the percentage that actually end up needing mechanical ventilation and aerosolizing procedures and whatnot? What's your overall experience to date? Um, well, we've had a pretty steady stream of patients over the last eight weeks or so. Uh, we had a somewhat of a early-ish peak, I think probably in uh, about six weeks ago, where we filled up to about 15 to 17 patients in our unit, and then it ebbed for a while, and now we're back pretty full. I don't know our exact number today, but I think it's between 14 and 16. Um, about half the patients have been vented, and um, then the other half or so is usually on a combination of what you'd expect, OptiFlow, a few on non-invasive, and then a few, particularly some that are recovering, that we have down on four or five liters of oxygen, but intermittently they pop back up to 10 liters, and we can't quite get them out of the ICU. Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen the same thing in our ICU. Um, you know, early on, we were told that early intubation was best practice. Um, but later we figured out that this probably was not the case because this disease process did not look or behave, I should say, like true ARDS. We did not have high peak pressures. The lungs were actually very compliant. It was just oxygenation was an issue. 
And I know that in our hospital, we'd actually been doing awake self-proning. And without any actual research, at least anecdotally, I can say, I believe it's helped some patients stay out of the ICU. Have you guys tried doing that? Yeah, we're doing awake self-proning. I'm not involved with the patients before they get to the unit, but um, we're encouraging and demonstrating for all, uh, all the patients to do awake self-proning when they come to the ICU. Um, I mean, some of the patients are much better and more comfortable about it than others. Um, I mean, some of them, you know, they, they just, for whatever reason, they aren't comfortable and they, they don't, won't, don't engage with it. But I think it has been very helpful um, for a few of the patients. Of course, there's a little bit of a self-selection. I think healthier or patients with less chronic conditions and maybe a little bit healthier baseline tend to do more self-proning. But um, certainly we're doing it on patients. We particularly doing it with most of these people on OptiFlow, although we will try it on people who are also on non-invasive. And then people on nasal cannula are doing it, um, doing it as well. I mean, we encourage them to do it for at least a few hours, a few times a day. Um, I think every every few every hour is a is a benefit. So I don't have a set exact protocol. We just encourage them to do it as much as possible. Interesting. I saw on trials.gov. There's actually they're doing a trial of self-proning in, I want to say, Ireland. And um, their protocol was 16 hours on your stomach within a 24-hour period. So you can flip back and forth to get up to go to the bathroom or to eat, but you were spending 16 hours on your tummy. Uh, So it would be interesting to see what that actual trial comes out to show. But I can say anecdotally it seems to have um, I've seen some, I hope I've seen some benefit from it. Maybe it was just um, dumb luck, but um, we'll see. You know, there's also been a lot of discussion about the hypercoagulable state that we're seeing in many patients. I know that I've personally seen it, and it has been so common that at our hospital, we took the approach that Mount Sinai in New York City did you know, by starting early heparin drips for our patients with D-dimers over 2,000 micrograms per deciliter. Have you done anything similar to this at your hospital? I know that, um, we'll actually ask um, Dr. Evans to jump in here also with Dr. Wynn and talk a little bit about um, what you guys are doing about this hypercoagulable state. I mean, we've been taking it on a case-by-case basis. Uh, my personal kind of outlook and opinion is I tend to see COVID as more similar to other things than different. Um, and, I mean, a good example, I think, of this is on patients who were don't know if they have COVID or not, you know, we're testing a lot of these inflammatory markers and D-dimers that we normally never test, and they're elevated on almost everyone. Um, I have been using a modified dose prophylactic anticoagulation with Lovinox on select patients with significantly elevated D-dimers using a half milligram per kilogram of Lovinox BID. Um, I, I haven't been empirically putting heparin drips on anyone, um, and other patients I've been using just standard prophylaxis. It's very hard to interpret the data. I, I really don't know what the answer is. I know, Dr. Evans, you were looking at this early on. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think some somewhat similar to Dr. Wynn, you know, the, the, there's been a huge amount of energy around, are these people hyperthrombotic? And, um, the, and because patients were having some sort of VTE or they were getting more hypoxemic, but they weren't having any compliance issues, um, then people were saying, why are they so hypoxemic? Is this a gas exchange? And is it happening because of microthrombi in the lungs? And so let's go ahead and treat them with um, some sort of an anticoagulant. And 
and you know, as you, we looked pretty closely into the literature regarding this to try to figure out is this is it really happening? And if so, then what should we be doing about it? And so that you know, the is it really happening? It, there are a number of um, published articles right now that say say patients are hyperthrombotic, um, but it it's hard to determine whether or not they're hyperthrombotic because they're having a big inflammatory response because they're very sick. And, and similarly, the elevated D-dimer, um, you know, D-dimer is an inflammatory marker. And so, so knowing whether or not the D-dimer is just elevated because the patient's having a big inflammatory response or if the D-dimer is elevated because they're specifically having thrombosis um, and some clot breakdown is, is not really clear. So one of the ways that we are attempting to sort that sort out that question is include a measure that actually assesses thrombosis. And so we, we're using the thromboelastogram, which is a measure specifically of thrombosis, as opposed to the D-dimer, which can be lost in the inflammatory state a little bit. And so as we look at the um, thromboelastogram, we're looking for an R-value, which is very short, so less than perhaps five seconds, and a maximum amplitude of the clot strength of 70, um, 70 millimeters. So if we find those, then we're, we're saying the patient is hyperthrombotic. And if they, or the, I'm sorry, is at risk for hyperthrombosis? We don't really know yet, and so we need to figure that out. But if they meet those criteria, then we consider what exactly what Dr. Wen is talking about, doing some sort of an, what we're calling an enhanced prophylaxis dosing, and that's the um, 0.5 millimeters milligrams of, of enoxaparin BID so that we are not going to a um, anticoagulation dose, but we're just at an enhanced prophylaxis dose. Um, you know, the, some of the, some of the early studies that it's, that have said they're thrombotic, you know, they it, and have a microthrombi um, in the lungs, they've done some autopsy studies and say, there are fibrin plugs, but, the, but part of what's happening with those fibrin plugs is those fibrin, the fibrin is actually perhaps using, essentially corralling the virus as opposed to fibrin that is part of a clot. And so, um, and a lot of them, if you read the patholo pathologist report, they talk about a, you know, a fibrin plug, but they don't necessarily, that, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're having thrombosis. Are patients having um, elevated thrombosis? They might be. And, you know, patients are coming in and it seems like the stroke rate is a little bit higher in these patients and that sort of thing. So we would, you know, we're hoping to figure that out over time. It, are they really hyperthrombotic or are they just sick? And it's a big inflammatory state. So we sort of took a more conservative approach than giving um, an uh, anticoagulation if we think they might be hyperthrombotic. So we'll see. I, I think this one's a very interesting one because this one, went, uh, moved very quickly as soon as it, as soon as people started talking about it, it, it seemed a little bit like blood in the water and, uh, and, and lots of people concerned about, the, about this, this question and how we should really be managing the patients. I was just, um, reading an article the other day about a ear, nose and throat specialist in New York city that was asked to step in and help take care of COVID patients. And he ended up, uh, getting COVID. Now this gentleman, um, probably late forties, and was a marathon runner. So he was an elite runner, runs multiple marathons, probably does not have a lot of cardiovascular disease, at least probably doesn't have any peripheral vascular disease, or he'd definitely know it. And uh, so he was convalescing at home. He was, you know, diagnosed, convalescing at home. 
started having bilateral calf pain just sitting around. He thought, oh no, I got a DVT. And then he, by the time he got to the hospital, both feet were blue and he sure enough had bilateral arterial thrombi from his knees down. And um, so he is saying that he thinks it's obviously COVID because there's no reason that this guy should have had um, some kind of thrombi. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out in the end. But somebody otherwise healthy, on their feet all day, continuing to work, actually a runner um, getting arterial thrombi like that, I suspect that there is definitely something to it. So um, speaking of this, um, of course, we know that plasma plays a big role in um, thrombi. But how about giving convalescent plasma? Have you guys, uh, Dr. Shahid, have you given any convalescent plasma to anybody? What's your experience been with that? So I think like most things about COVID-19, you know, we, we are intervening without having a lot of understanding. I think the history of convalescent plasma goes back 100 years where in pandemic flu was treated with convalescent plasma too. I do believe that there may be some, um, there may be some efficacy if done in a, standardized fashion. We at our institution do give convalescent plasma um, to people who are requiring a little bit higher oxygen and have risk factors to do poorly. A um, couple of thoughts about convalescent plasma. We know that the most there is no randomized control trial for convalescent plasma. So there would be no data um, for efficacy at this point. There obviously are efficacy um, safety concerns making sure that people do not have uh, experienced adverse events. Um, so I think we're part of a um, big meal clinic protocol that has about 1,200 patients enrolled, and they continue to give safety reports out. So they haven't seen any adverse events. The answer of efficacy remains unknown. On a positive note about the convalescent serum, interestingly, out of China, I believe, I looked at a convalescent plasma specific to the antigens on the virus, and that had good results. So I think there would be, as we become more novel uh, in our approach with, even with convalescent serum, there may be promising results. I heard that the NIH is actually taking um, convalescent plasma, concentrating the antibodies from multiple donors into one single dose of like an IVIG specifically of the COVID-19 antibodies. Have you heard or seen anything about that coming out? Yeah, so there are certain institutions. So right now, the neutralization antibody testing that looks at the titer of the neutralizing antibodies in the donor serum is only available through the NIH. And I believe Seattle is having a requirement of a specific titer to be used as a in mortality. So I think there's more to come about that. And also, not only these concentrated serum, but specific antigen targets might be part of it in the near future. So I think as these testing become more readily available, I think there would be more to come about the efficacy uh, if the product is better. Interesting. Um, before kind of getting back into some bedside patient care questions, I had a question that came in from a surgeon at Rush Hospital in Chicago. So this is going to be for our Dr. Evans first here. He asks, as the lockdown has been prolonged, we seem to be seeing a lot more domestic violence, gunshot wounds, stabbings, orthopedic injuries of kids doing stupid tricks because they're bored out of their mind, not to mention the motor vehicle crash injuries seem to be from driving at much higher speeds than we typically see, and our suicide rate seems to be very high, much higher than it has been in the past. Is that happening anywhere else, or is it just my perception here in Chicago? Are you seeing that where you are, Dr. Hmm. Uh, Evans? Yeah. So, you know, I thought that was going to happen, and, and it, once the... Um, uh, 
shutdown happened, you know, the, the stay at home um, orders happened, I thought, oh, gosh, people are going to be at home and they're going to be with family members that they don't like very much and they're going to get real frustrated with them and, and we're going to end up with with either gunshot wounds or stab wounds or, you know, violent, violent injury or people. And I think this part is probably real that I think, you know, there's, there's a fair amount of um, depression associated with the isolation. And I thought we were going to see a lot more of those. And the truth is we did not. And in fact, when the stay at home order happened, our at the same time, surgical volume went down dramatically because because we uh, um, decreased the number of surgeries that were being done. We eliminated um, surgeries that were considered non-essential. And of the essential surgeries, we were really focusing on the ones that needed to be done pretty acutely. And so, in fact, our volume went down quite a bit and our trauma volume went down at the same time. And that actually really surprised me. And it stayed down for um, you know, we started this in mid to late March, and then it's, it stayed down for a good three to four weeks. And the trauma volume is back up to where it should be <laughs> for um, our community. Um, we have uh, our biggest peaks really in kind of April to May and then in October again. And I think that's be- that's partly because that's the best time of year, at least here. Um, and so our volume has gotten, trauma volume has gotten back to where um, it it, I would expect it to be at this point, um, but you know, relating to the, the the higher speeds, we did we have had some folks with higher speed crashes, and and yes, they have had um, injuries that you would anticipate with the higher speed crashes. But we did not have what I expected to have to, to be associated with the the social isolation uh, and with the with increased uh, violence. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's because uh, Chicago is a bigger, you know, dense um, metropolitan area, and they were their lockdown uh, restrictions were much more, I would say, strict than they were here, which probably just escalates the um, frustration level. Um, anyways, I just find it interesting. So uh, for our doctor at Rush, um, uh, yes, we see some, but not nearly as much as it sounds like you're saying. Uh, it just could be your perception. Um, a hospital administrator asks, and I'm going to leave this open to anybody in the panel, um, based on your personal experience, what is the one thing that you feel you would want to communicate to your patients about COVID-19? Why don't we start off with, um, uh, let's go with Dr. Shahid first. I think the one thing that I really want to say that even though there has been what we call medical distancing, I just want to remind our patients that we are, on, we are in this together. You may not see us more physically, but virtually uh, we're here. And then also if you are sick, do reach out because we're going to take this journey together. Excellent. How about you, Dr. Evans? Yeah, you know, I would kind of um, add on to that. And, and I think a lot of people are um, afraid to come to the hospital um, and and afraid to get COVID because of because we are seeing so many um, on the news. We see so much of you know bad things that are happening. But the truth is that not everybody who gets COVID has a bad outcome. And in fact, once you come to the hospital, um, it feels very weird for patients and their families because their families can't be here. And that's very different. Um, the truth is it feels weird for us, too. And we are humans. And what that means is that we're, um, as Dr. Shahid said, we're going to take care of you if you're the patient or your family member, if it's your family member who's the patient. And and I would just say that even if it feels like they're going into this scary place, which is the hospital, the scary place still has people there helping take care of their loved ones. So 
um, it, it will get better and, and they will get taken care of um, just like we take care of people when their family members can be right there by their side. How about from our ICU doc, Dr. Wynn, what would you want to say to your patients? Well, I think just, uh, I mean, in terms of more of the general population, I think people need to understand it's a little bit of a long game at this point. Um, it's not necessarily going to, I think a lot of us thought it would come in a huge wave and come and go, but it, it's probably going to be an issue in the community for the foreseeable future. So I think people need to just understand that. Um, as far as our ICU patients, you know, we tell, I try to talk to them, people when they come in and just tell them, you know, we're doing everything we can for them. Uh, you know, have people hang in there, try to just let them know every day when the ones that aren't intubated, just let us know how they're feeling. A lot of people have a lot of anxiety in here. Um, try to get up to their, their families and just do everything we can to take care of them, both uh, physically and mentally. Yeah, you guys have all brought up this idea of family. Um, what we actually did at our institution, we were the first in our system to actually set up, so our, our um, for our listeners out there, we have this thing called a VCC or virtual critical care. It's like an EICU so that people remotely can camera into the room and see and intervene on, on a patient's behalf, you know, so intensive care doctors can intervene for the patients. And, well, we've used that technology, and we set up a, a little room right outside the front door of the hospital where now families can come in, and they can camera into the room and see their loved ones that are in the intensive care unit. The ones that are in a ventilator, well, there's no speaking, but at least they can see how they're being cared for and whatnot. And then there's other patients that are actually speaking still because they're not on the ventilator, and they can actually interact with their loved ones. That has really gone a long way with both the patients seem to be getting better. At least they seem their spirits are better, hopefully making them get better sooner. And the families, it's really helping with their anxiety. So um, it'd be interesting if any of our other listeners out there are using something similar to that. I know that that then spread across our system as a whole and has become very, very popular in the community. Speaking of which, you know, a, a palliative care physician sends a question. He says, how has working in the new COVID era affected you personally? And has it affected actually how you do your job? We'll start off with Dr. Evans on this one. Yeah, you know, the, the beginning of uh, this um, impacted us in, in one way. You know, when, when people in New York were sprinting, physically taking care of patients um, as they were getting inundated in their ICUs, we were in the process of planning and planning and planning and planning. And as a consequence, you know, when I'm wor working and taking care of patients, Clinically, I'm, I'm at the hospital, but when we're, I'm not taking care of patients, I'm at my home do, working remotely like everyone else is. And, you know, we had a big rush of all of us working together and, and trying to collaborate. And so 150 emails a day and eight to 10 hours of phone calls all day because we were doing so much planning um, that, that getting the, that part of the work done was, was exhausting. And so it was really physically very physically and emotionally very draining because it was, con we, you know, everyone, we felt constantly behind trying to make new guidelines, trying to get new processes and, and, and collaboration, you know, in, in place so that we knew who was going to cover what patients when, when all this huge surge happened. And then the surge didn't happen. And so we had to re reset. And uh, now the reset I think we're starting to get used to that and recognize that, as as uh, Dr. Wen talked about, we um, are going to have COVID for a while, for quite a while, 
um, it, we're not going to have the big, big tidal wave that we thought we were going to have. And so all of that rush and, and planning um, in some ways seems for naught. But what it means is that as we have ebbs and flows, we're going to be able to adapt to them very quickly. And, you know, heaven forbid we get we get another virus or another something where we need to to interact with one another. We now have the processes in place to really be able to do that. And so I, I feel good about the processes that we've established to really collaborate well throughout the, the whole system. You bring up a great point. Um how we were all expecting a, a big surge uh, where we were going to be up all night. We're going to have to be escalating our residents up to attending level quickly at the bedside just so that we can care for the, the number of patients that were going to be coming in. And we didn't see that. And I think that's how it's been across the vast majority of the country. So this podcast today is actually kind of the real majority of America right now, the kind of ICU experience and COVID experience that we're having. Of course, Detroit, they got crushed. New York, Upper New Jersey, same thing. Seattle, same thing. Some hospitals have had more than others. Some hospitals have only had just a handful of patients. So, uh, But nevertheless, everybody had to prepare. For example, we were told that we had to increase our ICU capacity by 300%. So when you were talking about that planning phase, that's what we had to do is our planning was to make it way so that we can have 300% of the ICU beds over what we have now. Fortunately, my ICU is pretty small, so adding 300 total bed, I mean, 300 percent is only adding. Yeah, that would be a lot. Adding 300 percent would just take my ICU up to about 24 beds. Whereas, if you were to try to do that at Dr. Wynn's hospital, he would be looking at you know 800 beds or something like that. So, uh, hopefully, he didn't have to do it there. But I'm sure that their hospital was going to be ready for it. Um, how about you, Dr. Wynn, ask, answering this uh, palliative care physician's question, how has uh, working in the COVID area affected you personally, and how has it affected how you do your job? Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question. Um, it, On the one hand, my some of the day-to-day part of my routine is so unrecognizable to what it was just 10 weeks ago. I mean, the idea that I used to just come rolling into the ICU with no mask on and high five people and say hello to the staff and eat my food is just seems crazy now, just 10 weeks later. Um, the whole feel of our unit, I mean, our unit looks absolutely transformed. Uh, you walk through our unit today and you walk through it 10, 10 weeks ago, it looks like a whole new planet with everybody in scrubs and in N95s and with masks and shields and the vents outside the room, et cetera. Um, that being said, you know, you see this both in yourself and in the staff, people can get used to anything. And, uh, this already almost just really feels like a new normal in in a good way. I mean, I, I think, um, there's from the staff, I mean, people are less, there, there was a, I think early on, people were very scared and I, I don't, I think, I mean, everyone's still scared and, um, everyone still is apprehensive, but I think we've got, I think we've gotten over the hump in terms of it. It's not so, we aren't letting the, those questions. Like I, I remember when I first, a few weeks of doing this, I, every order that I did or like, I don't want to make anybody go in the room for this or that. And now we're kind of, we feel good in our PPE. We're going into patients' rooms where a lot of things have reverted to standard ICU care, which I, I think is good. But um, definitely it's uh, on a day-to-day basis, uh, 
it, it just is a new normal now. It's interesting you bring up the idea of uh, back to standard ICU care. Back in the early days, we used to, a patient come in, we would completely sedate them. They would be on multiple different drugs. They wouldn't move for two weeks. And then by the time we got them awake and everything, it was they were basically a year out, they were still having PTSD issues. And then, came, then along came this idea, this ICU liberation. And the ICU liberation is multiple different steps out there for listeners who don't know what that is. It's uh, came across by the Society of Critical Care Medicine has this ICU liberation. And the more of these things that you do on their liberation panel, the better the outcome is for your patient and a much better patient experience. And even one-year outcomes are substantially better. And so in the COVID era, we've been doing fewer of those things. Um, not me personally, um, in our hospital, again, my ICU is not that big, so we've been able to maintain. But I know that in New York and those other places where they were just getting crushed, there's no way that they could, no human possible way that they could have accomplished that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if mortality actually, part of the mortality is up because we weren't able to do the ICU liberation things like we were before. We're not going to know that for another five years. Someone have some graduate student or fellow or something's going to have to go through all that data much later. So it'll be interesting. Um, how about you, Dr. Shahid? What has the COVID era um, affected you personally? And uh, has it affected how you do your job? So I think the, the COVID um, has been a challenging experience for me, both emotionally uh, at work and at home. I think I've gone through different phases from, from denial to, uh, to reality, to planning, uh, to uh, adjustment. So I think that, like um, Dr. Evans said, that it was insane amount of emails, calls, planning, operational uh, issues. Um, and so I think we had a lot of challenges then. Um, I have, I'd felt anxiety, insomnia, um, dreaming COVID, all those stages to now caring for the patient, coming up with the plan. Um, I think that it has been a journey. It has been what has been the best part about all of this is how different areas, institutions, service lines have come together. Uh, to be able to collaborate. I've talked to people that have never have reached out uh, before. So I think it has been a huge collaborative effort. Uh, where we are, where I am right now, emotionally and mentally, is much better of where I was before. And I think it has been definitely hard to break away from work. Um, because of how involved we become, and I think it would be my next challenge as to how can I find that balance but I do believe that, you know, human spirit prevails. And yeah. um, and I think we will come out um, very good at the end of all of this. Interesting you bring that up. Um, I just saw an article this morning that said, I don't know if it's true or not, but it said that they're seeing less physician burnout during the COVID era. Now, if you separate that from primary care to acute care, you're seeing more burnout in acute care and almost zero burnout in primary care. Well, that's because their clinics are closed uh, for the most part. Um, but if you look at the people that um, were burning out before, their burnout is not worse. So what does that mean? What they were suggesting in the article was that doctors were not feeling the purpose that they signed up for when they became docs. And now in the COVID area, now they feel like they have a purpose. Like, okay, this is my Super Bowl. This is what I've trained for. This is what I am 
This was, I was born for this moment. And now they are just jumping in. And because of that, their burnout's going down. Meanwhile, uh, they got the docs in primary care that were just, you know, on the verge of flaming out saying, you know, I feel like I got a couple more years left in me now. So, um, and then the other thing you brought up, Dr. Shahid, was this idea of collaboration and new things. There's so many new innovations that we've seen. For example, moving ventilators and um, IV pumps out of the room. Uh, this I posted this actually on LinkedIn um, way, way back before the COVID thing even really started to pick up juice. And um, I got an email and then another LinkedIn message from a CEO in Silicon Valley who now made a Foley catheter. His company's made a Foley catheter that will digitally track urine output and temperature and abdominal pressures. And they've made it so that it attaches to, so their cable is now 20 or foot long or so, and it comes outside the room. So you don't even have to go in the room to do IV fluids, manage the ventilator, or even follow urine output now. So, um, and that was all done in purpose specifically to minimize PPE. Just by taking the ventilators out of the room and the IV pumps, we decreased PPE usage by almost 70%. That was fantastic. So um, unfortunately, in a lot of hospitals, like I know at um, Henry Ford in Detroit and a lot in New York, they still have open bay hospitals, which is curtains. Uh, there's, taking a ventilator out of there is not going to make a difference. Um, so that's how come they were really struggling with their PPE while we were able to save ours. Um, have you guys, anybody in the panel here, seen any new in- innovation that um, you find that uh, really may persist and um, make a difference in your patient's care? This is Susan. I, I would say that the that the biggest thing, probably at least within our institution or within our entire system, is the is expansion of virtual care. You know, we've been um, as Dr. Wen said, we we've used virtual critical care for quite some time, or maybe maybe you said that, uh, but the we've had that for quite some time, and we've had um, small pockets of virtual care being done in home settings. Um, but we didn't, ex- but it really was needing a kick and it got a kick with the COVID, um, uh, event here. And, um, so much so that, you know, our virtual hospital even, uh, was, was stood up quite quickly. It was in, it was, um, you know, it was not a, a, a brand new thought. It had been, um, in the works, but it just needed that extra energy to move it forward. And so certainly, from a virtual standpoint, we're going to be in a much better place now moving yeah. forward. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank our panel. This is Dr. Susan Evans, Dr. Zainib Shahid, and Dr. John Wynn um, for uh, giving us your time today. I know you guys are in the middle of things. I know Dr. Wynn is actually in the ICU right now um, trying to communicate with us in between patients. He actually texted me earlier and said, man, I'm getting kind of busy here. So hopefully I'll be able to make the podcast time. So I'm glad to see that he was able to join us. Again, wonderful experts. I've had the privilege of working with each one of these physicians. These are top notch. Take care of anybody in your family, my family, anywhere. I completely and totally trust these docs. I really appreciate the time that they spent with us today. I want to thank you all again for joining us here on the Spyro Podcast. Before we close, I want to thank you for your support and your patience. I took a week off from putting together another podcast because, well, there really wasn't a whole lot for me to discuss that I thought was meaningful enough to take up your time. And I was wanting to spend some time with my wife and daughter that's also in from Nashville. So 
please keep listening from wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends. If you like what you've heard today, please give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the search results. And finally, I'll leave today's podcast with a song from Tom McDonald. I'm going to go ahead and let the whole song play through as we take a minute on this Memorial Day and reflect on those who served and who have fallen on the battlefield fighting for our freedoms. Started in China, now everybody in America's hiding. There's no groceries, cause people start to panic and buy it. The shelves are empty, the ones with plenty already stockpiling. Y'all making memes, think it's funny? Wait a week till the riots, wait a month till the only way to eat is be violent. It's not the sickness is scary, it's all the people who whiling. The government lying, they trying to keep us calm through the sirens. You know it's for real. And all the pharmaceutical giants don't have a cure that they can sell you, so now everyone's dying. There's no vaccines or medication made that can fight it. I guess it's time to pray to God we can't rely on the science. And everyone around me in a mask and some gloves. The stock market crashed and the bank's about to bust Tell us sanitize our hands, this will pass It's a bug, stay inside, you'll be fine Till we're trapped there for months It's a ghost town, we're in this together They're closing all the stores down We're heading for shelter It's a war now, they'll always remember We're locking all our doors down We're sticking This a pandemic, but we don't listen to the news Cause they lied to us for years, so how we know that this the truth? And most of us are young enough to think that we're immune So we just pass it on to people who won't survive it like you It's either worse than they're telling us or it's nothing at all But the school shut down, a ghost town in the mall They gon' quarantine the city, block the road out of Dodge Then tell us leaving our homes is actually breaking the law This is just the beginning, you know it's gotta get worse If the doctors get sick, the hospitals won't work The conspiracy theories all sound like facts, that's for sure But the fact is, we're trapped on this planet called Earth and the bleach gone, the bread gone, the water sold out The meat gone, the milk gone, the pasta sold out Don't leave anything for anyone, you hoard it for yourself You'd rather tell them go to hell than be a man and go and help It's a ghost town, we're in this together They're closing all the stores down, we're heading for shelter It's a war now, they'll always remember We're locking out our doors down, we're sticking the best but we're preparing for the worst there's one thing we're not scared of is hard work we're up against an enemy that doesn't have a face there's no bombs we can drop there's nowhere we can aim there's no soldiers to stop with a tank at the gates there's no cure that we've got or a pill we can take there's no food it's been bought the truth is we're afraid we sit inside our rooms and we pray it's a ghost town we're in this together